You're listening to a sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel, Niagara. We believe in unapologetic preaching, unashamed adoration of Jesus, unceasing prayer, unafraid witness, and uncommon community. If you have yet to do so, we would love to have you join us for worship in God's Word on Sunday mornings. For more information, visit us online at harvestniagara.ca. Thanks for listening. I don't know if you remember the, the first time I was here just sort of preaching before I was asked to come and do this role as interim pastor. I, I was very emotional. <clears throat> and the reason for that, and I get emotional sometimes when I least expect it, so I, I always carry Kleenex. That last song, I was just bawling over there, so my Kleenex is what. Um, but the reason for my emotion that morning was um, I, I had come home. I didn't, I didn't know you, I had no connection, I had no idea that I might end up being the interim pastor, but I had spent <clears throat> uh, many years in the denomination that was drifting and, and increasingly feeling alone and isolated within this denomination. And I'd go to events and I would be with people and I'd feel like a stranger and I would, I would tell my wife, <laughs> chief assistant to the Holy Spirit in charge of conviction, I'd say, honey, I don't want to go to this meeting. I don't want to go to this thing. And Cindy would say, honey, you got to go. You got to fulfill your responsibility. You got to do what God's called you to do. But both of us felt increasingly isolated in this, in this, in this movement. And I came here that Sunday morning by myself. You, were, you weren't with me, hon. And um, it was just such a beautiful experience to be with people who loved the Lord the way I did, who, who thought the way I did, who wanted to hold the same things that I wanted to hold on to tightly. And um, it just felt like I was home. And I've been so blessed to be home. We didn't know what the future was going to be. We didn't know where we were going to be, if God was just going to have us serve as lay people in the church or he was going to give us other opportunities to serve somewhere else. And <clears throat> this sort of came out of the blue. And we have been so blessed to get to know many of you and to make friends with some of you and just to feel that uh, this is our kind of second home. So we are going to be back. And, uh, you know, just don't be surprised if, uh, if you show up in the back seat some morning and just listen to Pastor Ross preach. He's a great preacher. You're going to be blessed by him. He's a good man. He and, he and Leanne are just a wonderful couple. And I'm just so excited for the future of this church and for what God's going to do through Harvest Niagara in the years to come. And so I just want to, on behalf of Cindy, I just want to say thank you for accepting us, for welcoming us, for blessing us, for listening to me Sunday by Sunday, and just, uh, just being the congregation that you are. You've been a, a rich blessing to us, and we're very, very grateful. So thank you. Thank you. So... Before I start to cry, let's turn to Malachi and uh, look at this passage of Scripture that Nate read for us. <clears throat> I think if I was to summarize the history of the Old Testament in one word, I would use the word futility. The word futility, in my mind, is the word that most perfectly captures the story of the entire Old Testament from Genesis to Malachi. Futility. <clears throat> Futility. It demonstrates the Old Testament, if it does anything, it demonstrates over and over again that humanity, that mankind does not have, did not have the capacity, the answer, the ability to deal with sin. It began in the garden when Satan tempted and deceived Eve. 
And when Adam willingly and intentionally took the fruit and disobeyed God, a few generations, and they were obviously expelled from the garden. A few generations later, we read these words in Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. Now listen to this. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. Sin had found a place in the heart of humanity and was spreading and defiling and corrupting and destroying. So God decided to sort of start again. And if you look at the parallels between the creation stories of Genesis and the sort of the creation story of Noah, there's, there's incredible similarities. God was in the process of recreating. God was in the process of starting over. But we know the, how that story ended. God saved this righteous man. And he comes out of the ark. And, and, and not long after that, we read that he's drunk. And sin again begins to spread its infection within humanity. And so we come to chapter 12 of Genesis, and God says, what I'm going to do is I'm going to build a nation, a people of my own, a righteous and holy people. I will give them the law, my law. I will give them my presence, and they will be distinct. They will be set apart, and they will live a godly and holy life. But as you know from the story of the Old Testament, that was filled with failure and sin and compromise and futility. And yeah, there were moments of greatness. There was the, the exodus. There was the conquest of Canaan. There was the kingdom of David. But following that, again, we see 400 years of a slide into sin and rebellion and wickedness and the worship of other gods. So by the time we get to 586 B.C., about a 1,000 years, 900 years after the Exodus, the city of God and the temple of God are a smoldering ruin. The people of God are in exile because of their sin and the rebellion against God, because of their worship of pagan gods and their thirst for sin. But God had promised, and we know this, the book of Jeremiah, God had promised that he would bring his people back within 70 years, and he did that. In 516, a new temple was dedicated 70 years after the exile. However, to the great disappointment of God's people, God's presence did not return. We talked about that in our first Sunday in the study of Malachi. God's presence did not return, and that created disillusionment and frustration and angst and anger at God, which precipitated a slide into lukewarmness. We talked about that last week. Apathy, a coldness towards God, a dispassionate heart towards God. And now we read in Malachi chapter 2, verse 17, that the apathy, the nominalism, the lukewarmness had led to outright apostasy. And I want you to look at verse 17 of chapter 2, and I want to read it again for you. Malachi says, you have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? And this is what they were saying. Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them, or by asking, where is the God of justice? So their apathy, their lukewarmness had, had slid to this place of apostasy where they were saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord delights in them. They had come to that place where they had turned the law of God completely upside down, 
And they have said those things that God had prohibited, he now delights in. And Malachi confirms this when he reminds them of the question they were asking. And the question they were asking is this, where is the God of justice? The implication is simple. If God is just and he truly hates sin the way he says he does, why is he blessing these pagan nations who are living in sin? If God's law is genuine and if it reflects the character of God, How come these people, these pagan nations all around us, are defying the law of God and receiving at the same time the blessing of God? The only conclusion that you can come to is that God must approve of them and their sin. God's people had concluded If God really opposes the actions of these pagan nations, he would judge them. But his lack of response was an indication of his approval of them. Now, this isn't the first time that this issue had risen its ugly head in the history of Israel. Way back, a couple hundred years before this, the prophet Isaiah had said this in Isaiah 5.20, "'Woe to those in Israel who call evil good and good evil.'" who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness. Basically what he is saying is woe to those who turn the law of God upside down and call what God says is good, evil, and what God says is evil, good. Excuse me, but this is exactly what was happening in Israel right now. This is what they were doing. And they had become apostate again. And so here we are, a couple of chapters from the end of the Old Testament, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years of history, God's redemptive history with his people in their struggle with sin. And from the exodus to the exile to the post-exilic prophets, the same message. It's the same story of futility. Sin seems to always win. Darkness seems to always triumph. Satan seems to have his way. The story of the Old Testament from Genesis through Malachi is a story of the relentless, unstoppable, and merciless power of sin in the human heart. The story of the Old Testament reveals one thing more clearly than anything else, that mankind, humanity on its own, does not have an answer for sin. If you want to understand the Old Testament, that's where you start. That we do not have an answer to the problem of sin. But praise God. That's not where the Old Testament stops. Chapter three, one chapter before the end of the story, Malachi gives us hope. Hope that God is going to act. Hope that the power of sin would one day be broken. Hope that Israel's battle with sin would no longer be a futile battle. What Malachi predicted was the coming of John the Baptist and the coming of Jesus 
the Messiah, the incarnate son of the living God, who would suddenly come to his temple. But it wouldn't be for another 500 years. Another 500 years of increased futility, another 500 years of sin having its way, another 500 years of Satan's domination and control, another 500 years of ever-growing futility. Go to Galatians chapter 4. I was just going to reference, but I think it's important to look at it. Galatians chapter 4, Paul says something wonderful. I think in reference to this whole thought. Galatians chapter 4, he says this in verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, see that? God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those of us who were under the law and as a consequence, helpless because of Adam's sin. Now, a lot of times you may hear preachers saying that in the fullness of time, God sent a son, and they'll say, what does that mean, the fullness of time? And they're correct when they tell you that in the fullness of time, God sent a son because there was a one world government. There was this thing called the Pax Romana that forced peace on the entire civilized world. There was a network of roads that made the dissemination of the gospel from Jerusalem out into the furthest reaches of the empire a possibility. There was one language that was spoken in, over the entire empire. In the fullness of time, God sent his son. Safe travel. Universal language that everyone spoke. But that's not really getting the heart of it. What really is at the heart of that little phrase in the fullness of time is this. When there could simply be no longer any doubt any question, any equivocation about the plight and the helplessness of humanity, God sent forth his son. When it was absolutely clear, when it was definitively clear that we did not have an answer to the problem of sin and the destructive, corrosive effects of sin, when it was absolutely obvious that there was nothing that we could do to redeem ourselves, out of the pit that we create for ourselves in every generation, God sent his son. You see, that's what Paul is saying in that passage of scripture, in the fullness of time, when there was no longer any doubt, question, or uncertainty about the truth that humanity could not defeat sin, God sent God to redeem a people for himself. And so now with the perspective of hindsight, we know far more detail about what Malachi was speaking about than Malachi could ever have understood. <clears throat> we know that this prophecy was filled in the persons of John and Jesus, and that we know that Jesus defeated the power of sin. We know that Jesus conquered Satan. We know that Jesus is Lord, and that the power of sin is broken. So. 
We know that theologically. We look around our culture today, and what do we see? What do we see? We see our society reaching the same conclusion that Israel, Israeli society reached in the mid-400s B.C. We live in a culture where individuals and churches and denominations and entire nations are choosing to dismiss the teaching of the Bible and they're turning the law of God upside down and calling what God calls evil good and calling what God calls good evil. That's where we are in the Niagara Peninsula today. It is a beautiful, pristine, gorgeous place. I've fallen in love with this place. But sin is having its way. Think about it. From abortion to divorce to homosexual sex to the redefinition of the family to the legalization of intoxication through the the marijuana laws, and the list could go on, right? We are calling what God calls evil good, and we're calling what God calls good evil. Our society now calls our convictions, our ethics, that are rooted in the scriptures, intolerant, narrow. And they'll either call us variously phobic or downright evil for our intolerance. And when this happens, you need to know that a culture has crossed the line, that we're on a slippery slope, that nothing good comes from this because God has not changed. God hasn't changed. Mankind has not changed. Humanity has not changed. And when we come to a place where we turn the law of God upside down and rejoice in it as a culture, individuals, churches, denominations, or nations, when we do that, you know that we are on a slippery slope to nowhere good. But this is where we are. So what do we do? What does Harvest Niagara do for the next month, the next year, the next decade, the next hundred years? What do you do until God redeems the situation? Well, here's the answer, I think. We plant ourselves resolutely in what Malachi predicted would happen. We stand firm in what Malachi hoped in. What Malachi hoped in is our reality. And there we stand. God help us, there we stand. We don't back down, we don't equivocate, we don't negotiate, we stand firm in those things that Malachi both hoped in and predicted, and we now look back with the advantage of hindsight and say, happened, definitively happened in the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So what are those things? What are those things that Malachi wrote about but never experienced? So today, I guess, on my last Sunday with you, I just want to give you four verses that I believe grew out of this passage by way of application. Four quick things that I think are absolutely critical for this church to be a shining light in this community so that that influence, that that 
that sort of out of balance reality of our society can be turned around one person at a time as men and women come to know Jesus personally. There's four things that are critical. Four things that are critical. First is this, don't be ashamed of the gospel. Look at verse one of Malachi three. Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. That's John. That's clearly reference to John the Baptist. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Malachi predicted the coming of the messenger of the covenant. Now remember, Ezekiel had written before this. He had written in exile. He had seen the spirit of God leaving the holy place and hovering over the wall of Jerusalem by by the Kidron Valley and then going up over the Mount of Olives and just leaving. And so when they built a temple in 516 and dedicated it, they anticipated that the spirit of God would return. And he didn't. But with the benefit of hindsight, we know how this prophecy was fulfilled. The Lord did return, humble and riding on the colt of a donkey. We call it Palm Sunday. That Sunday when Jesus entered Jerusalem for the last time and offered himself willingly as a sacrifice for sin. He offered himself and he went to the cross and on the cross he defeated the power of sin. He defeated Satan. In that moment that Satan thought he had his greatest victory, it was his ultimate defeat. I don't think Malachi had a clear understanding, a clear view of what he was writing about, but we do. We know that Jesus entered the temple as the sinless son of God, the lamb of God. He was incarnate God, and he had lived a perfect life sinless life. And he came that day and offered himself as a righteous, perfect sacrifice in our stead. And he willingly took the wrath of God upon himself. And God, listen to this, God murdered his son in order to save us. That's the gospel. That's how that new covenant that Malachi speaks about was established. God the Father killed God the Son in order that you and I might have life. He spilled his blood and took the wrath of God upon himself in order that we could be delivered from the wrath of God and be made children of God, be adopted into the family of God, as Paul says in Galatians 4. People don't like that idea that God's wrath had to be assuaged. They don't like the bloodiness of the cross. They don't like the picture of an angry God venting his wrath for our sin upon his son. And so what they do is they will sort of change and tamper with the gospel. Don't ever do that. Harvest Niagara, I plead with you Penal substitutionary atonement is the gospel. Don't ever change it. Don't ever allow someone who's got tons of letters behind their name convince you that that's not the gospel. 
The gospel in its essence is that the perfect son of God offered himself as our substitute so that the holy, just, righteous father might punish him to the fullest extent of our sin so that he might give us his righteousness and his holiness, that we might stand before God cleansed and pure. He became a curse so that we might become children of God. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. So the Apostle Paul at the beginning of the book of Romans says this, I am not ashamed of the gospel. And that's the verse, first verse I want to leave with you. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? For it is the power of God. It's the gospel, the unalloyed, untampered with, pure gospel of Jesus Christ that is the power of God into salvation. If you want to see a life transformed, if you want to see a town or a culture or a nation transformed or a church transformed, it will be through the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Never let it go. I'm thrilled that Ross is coming because he stands for square on that truth. That the gospel is the gospel is the gospel. It will not be tampered with. We will not change it. We will stick to it because it is the power of God and salvation. So first, Romans 1.16. Do not be ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God and his salvation to all who believe, to the Jew first, but also to the Gentile. Secondly, do not despise the discipline of the Lord. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5. Verse 2, but who can stand or who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and a fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Malachi goes on to speak about what this Lord, this God who is going to come to his temple, what he is going to do. And the second thing he talks about is the fact that he is going to purify a people for himself. He is going to make a people for himself who are pure. And he uses two illustrations to describe what he is going to do. The first is a refiner. He would heat up metal, silver, or gold to the boiling point, and he would sweep off the dross that is there to make it pure gold and pure silver. Secondly, he talks about a launderer. A launderer would take festive and religious clothing, usually whites, the robes of the, of the priests and so on, and he would put it in a big tub of detergent and he would stomp all over it and make it pure, make it white, make it beautiful. Now, I want, you, I want you just to stop for a second and notice that these are both extremely severe in nature. The metal was heated to the melting point the clothes were stomped on in a vat of strong alkaline, alkaline, alkaline detergent that was harsh and caustic. Malachi is saying this. Don't ever believe that God is not going to produce for himself a holy people. He will. He will. Despite the history of Israel's futility, God is going to purify a people for himself. And we call that the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what God does in our lives. Every son he receives, he disciplines. Go over to the book of Hebrews, if you would. Hebrews chapter 12. 
Hebrews chapter 12 speaks about this fact that God disciplines those whom he loves. And I don't have time to read the whole passage for you, but the, essentially through, from 3 through 13, it tells us that God is refining us. God is cleansing us, and he does it in an environment that is almost always harsh, painful, difficult, stressful. He does it in tears. He does it in disappointments. Remember, he whispers to us in our joys, but he shouts to us in our pain. God transforms a people. He transforms a church. He transforms a denomination, a culture. He does it in difficult circumstances. Look what he says in verse five. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be wearied when you are reproved by him. Do not regard lightly, do not despise the discipline of the Lord. That's how the King James says it. God has taken you as a church through difficult experiences. There have been disappointments. There have been tears. There's been some heartache. It's been difficult. But it's always been purposeful. It's always been for a reason. God has transformed you. God has strengthened you. God has deepened your roots. God has made you a people that you would not otherwise have become had it not been for this last year and a half. Has it been easy? No. Would we have asked for it? No. Are the results of it a beautiful thing to behold? Absolutely. And what he does in churches, he does in our lives personally as well. I don't know where you're at in your journey right now. You may be saying to yourself, I am in this moment of pain. I am going through a deep disappointment. I am living through the death of a dream. I am not in a good place, Paul. You're in the place that God has put you. You're in the painful place, the difficult place, the challenging place, the severe place where God shows us his severe mercy, his severe love, his severe kindness. In that, in those places, he transforms and changes us. Now, we don't like these difficult times. We don't generally run to these kind of difficult times. As a matter of fact, what we try to do is run from them. But at the end of this service, we're going to sing this song, Refiner's Fire. My heart's one desire is to be holy. <laughs> is to be holy. Why don't we sing cuddly nice God in the sky who provides everything for me whenever I ask? My heart's one desire is to be holy. Because we know that God whispers to us in our pleasures and shouts to us in our pain. God takes us through difficult circumstances because he loves us. So my, my encouragement to you is simply this. Do not despise the discipline of the Lord. How do we despise the discipline of the Lord? <clears throat> I think there's a lot of ways to answer that question. But I think most simply we despise the discipline of the Lord by asking God to change my circumstances rather than saying, God, what are you trying to change in me in these circumstances? I think most simply, that's what it means to despise the discipline of the Lord. 
when he is reproving us, when he is disciplining us, when he is transforming us, we're on our knees saying, God, take me out of the circumstances. I don't want the pain. Make it go away. Make it better. Instead of asking the question, Lord, what is it that you're trying to accomplish in me through these circumstances? And I I believe generally that when we answer that question and are able to sort of put clarity to what it is God is doing and get in line with his will, one of two things happen. The circumstances suddenly seem to be less burdensome, less difficult. We begin to be thankful for the circumstances because God's using them in our lives purposefully. We're able to say, I know that all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his circumstances, so I will rest here. I'll accept it. Or he takes us out of the circumstances. One of those two things is going to happen. So my second verse for you is this, Harvest Niagara. <clears throat> Hebrews 12, 5. Don't despise the discipline of the Lord. The next time you go through a difficult experience as a church, the next time you go through a difficult experience in your marriage or in your family or in your life personally, simply ask God, God, what are you doing? What are you trying to show me in these circumstances rather than saying, God, get me out of here? Because generally, God leaves you in them until you learn the lesson. Quickly, don't neglect to meet together. Verse 4, then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old, as in former days. The offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord. The offering of Israel, the offering of the people of God will one day, because of the mediation of the new covenant, it'll be pleasing to the Lord. And what he's talking about is worship. Worship. And so my next verse I want to share with you is, again, from Hebrews, Hebrews 10, 25. Do not neglect the assembling of yourselves together, as is the habit of some. Malachi anticipated that a people of God will be purified by the Spirit of God, and they, they will worship God in spirit and in truth, and that our worship will please him. Our worship will please him. That's what he says there. It'll be pleasing to the Lord. If there is anything that's critical to being a light in a world that is turned upside down, that is calling evil good and good evil, is to be a worshiping community where we reflect the glory of God in our unity. We reflect the glory of God in our singing. We reflect the glory of God in our preaching. We reflect the glory of God in our fellowship. The worshiping, the worshiping community overcomes sin in itself and ultimately when it gets that right in the world. There hasn't been a revival. There hasn't been a thing that, a revival, a movement of the Spirit of God that has changed the world and pushed back the gates of hell apart from a purified, transformed people of God. Praying for it, anticipating it, worshiping, and watching God do what only God can do. And so my encouragement to you is this. Although it may be difficult, although it may be challenges, don't neglect gathering together for worship. Don't neglect to meet together. Worship is critical if we're to see the church flourish and grow and in, impact a corrupt culture in which we live. As I said last week, 
in lukewarmness, it's too easy to allow worship to become second place in our lives. Don't let that happen. Be passionate about the worshiping community because it's the worshiping community that is able to do what Israel never could do. We can change the world. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ is an unstoppable force that is, is designed to transform the world, and we will, and we are. I think I shared this statistic with you very, very quickly. <clears throat> the historians tell us that in 100 AD, so 70 years after Jesus died and rose again, one out of every 360 people in the civilized world were followers of Jesus Christ, spirit-filled, born-again Christians. Missiologists today tell us that that number is between <clears throat> um, 9 and 10. 9 and 10% of the people on this planet are spirit-filled, born-again followers of Jesus Christ. It's not one in 360. It's about 9 or 10 out of 100. The Lord's building his church. The gates of hell can't stop him. The gates of hell stopped him all through the Old Testament. But Jesus defeated Satan. And he has empowered us and called us to go to all the nations with a message that cannot be thwarted by Satan. So stay together, stay unified, love one another, make worship a priority, make church a priority, because church is the means that God has raised up to change the world in every generation. He's doing it, and he's gonna continue to do it until he comes again. And lastly, and very quickly, don't let sin reign in your mortal bodies. Romans chapter six, verse 12. Verse 5 talks about the judgment of God, which is about to draw near. The judgment of God. I believe what Malachi is speaking about here, the judgment that he is speaking about here, happened in 70 AD. When the Roman armies surrounded Jerusalem, as Jesus had predicted in the Olivet Discourse, Mark 13, Luke 21, Matthew 24. <clears throat> Rome came and surrounded Jerusalem. They besieged the city. And Rome did to Israel what Nebuchadnezzar had done 500, 600 years before. They destroyed the city. They destroyed the temple. But this time, and this is significant, this time there was no coming back for Israel. Israel's final sin was her most vile. She did not recognize her own God when God walked among them. He came to his own, but his own did not receive him. There is nothing in, well, in the Gospel of John that is more startling, I think, than that. The God of Israel came to Israel, but Israel didn't recognize him. They had turned it so completely on its head that they called him a drunkard, a sinner, a crazy man, and eventually they killed him. Israel's apostasy, the apostasy of the Old Testament was complete when the Jews of Jesus' day killed Jesus. They rejected him. And so Christ, having made a new covenant with a new Israel, judged those who rejected his son and finally and completely obliterated the foundations of the Old Covenant, the temple, the worship, the sacrificial system, the priesthood. 
You see, Hebrews 8 verse 13 tells us that the temple had become obsolete and was about to disappear. That's how we know Hebrews was written before 70 AD, because it still stood. But it was vain, it was pointless, it was empty. Because the Son of God had come, but he had left again and established a new covenant outside the city wall in a garbage dump in his death and ultimately his resurrection. And here's what I want you to know. The horrors of 586 and the armies of Nebuchadnezzar were multiplied and intensified in 70 AD when Titus came to, to, to Israel, to Jerusalem. They were intensified and they were multiplied. And God again showed the world in that event, now listen, this is critical, God again in that event showed the world that he does not wink at, dismiss, or trivialize sin in any way, shape, or form. You read Josephus, the horrors that happened to Jerusalem in 70 AD were absolutely barbaric. This is 40 years after the new covenant had been established. And God vented his anger and his wrath on sinners. God takes sin very, very seriously, and so must we. <clears throat> I want you to go as we close to Romans chapter 5, and I want to show you two verse, uh, one verse where Paul says two things that are pretty important. Romans chapter 5, verse 20. He says two things that you probably would read over today and go, that's cool, but when Paul's, particularly his Jewish readers in Rome would have read this, they would have like jaw drop time. He says two things. First, Romans 5, verse 20. Now the law came in to increase the trespass. Every Jew for a thousand years had been taught that God's law was given to diminish the trespass to keep people from sinning. What Paul says is God's law was brought in in order to increase the trespass. Now he deals with that issue in chapter seven. The whole of chapter seven is an answer to the inevitable issue that would be raised by making that statement. But then the second thing he says, which he deals with in chapter six, is this. But where sin increased, Grace abounded all the more. In chapter 3, verse 8, Paul had been accused of telling people that because God's grace is so good, just keep on sinning. Just have a field day. All your sins are forgiven. God punished Jesus. You don't have to worry about it. Go and have fun. Go and sin. Go and live as you want. He knew he was being accused of that. So he deals with it. And he says in verse 6, verse 1, Chapter 6, verse 1. What are we to say then? How do we respond to this? What's our, what's our answer? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? May it never be. So, so there's a double negative. He goes like, no, and a thousand times no. We can't. Why? Because God hates sin. The God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament are the same God. If, if somehow the God of the New Testament was a different God and he was more tolerant and gracious towards sin, 70 AD wouldn't have happened. But it did. God judges sin. And so the last verse I want to leave you is over in chapter 6, verse 12. 
Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey its passions. Recognize the horrific nature of sin and fight it, battle it. God has called you to be more than conquerors. He has given you his Holy Spirit. He enables us to walk in newness of life. We can be a light in a dark place. So be that people. Do not let sin reign in this church. Root it out. Deal with it. Discipline those who won't deal with it. Keep short accounts with one another. Live holy lives. Be accountable to each other. Be a holy people. Because that's who you are. You are a people that God has called set apart. You're a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, a holy people to show forth the excellencies of him who called you out of the darkness into his marvelous light. That's who you are as Harvest Niagara. And as you do that, in this upside-down world that has turned its back on the law of God and thumbs its nose at God, God will use you. The light will penetrate the darkness as it has for 2,000 years. Lives will be changed. The ravages and the corrosive effects of sin in the lives of those people out there who have come under the, under the umbrella, under the scope of the ministry of this church are going to be transformed. You'll watch people be baptized. You'll see that sin is broken. The power of sin is broken. What was true from Genesis through Malachi is no longer true because Christ has made it so in his death and his resurrection in the sending of his Holy Spirit and the establishing of his church. So be that church. Be that church. Never be ashamed of the gospel. Don't despise the discipline of the Lord. Prioritize worship. Prioritize the body of Christ and refuse to let sin reign in your mortal bodies. And this church will be a source of transformation, powerful transformation in this community for many decades to come. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, I thank you so much for your grace to us. Malachi could only look forward with just very little perception. He knew that something magnificent would happen when the, when the Lord would come to his temple, but he didn't know what, didn't fully understand it. He may have had glimpses, but Lord, we know what happened. You went to the cross You died in our place. We are now the people of God, the redeemed holy people, set-apart people. So I pray, Father, that you would just cause us to know a sense of hope, a sense of optimism about the ministry of this church. And although we live in an upside-down, convoluted world where people are calling evil good and good evil, Lord, help us to remember that we can be the light. We can be the source of transformation. We can be the source of healing by your Spirit's power. And so, Lord, I pray for this church. I pray that your richest blessing would rest upon it, upon Ross as he comes in a few weeks to give leadership here. I pray, Father, that this church would be a beautiful bride, filled with your Spirit, filled with unity and love, filled with the gospel and a passion for holiness. 
and it would march strongly out into this, this part of the world, the Niagara Peninsula, and have lasting effects for generations on the lives of people who today call evil good and good evil. Bless them, I pray. And I pray that the bond of love, the bond of fellowship between Cindy and myself would always be strong. Because Lord, as Paul said to the Thessalonians, they have become dear to us. Lord, I thank you for these people. I thank you for their dearness. And I pray that your richest blessing would rest upon them now. In Jesus' name, amen.